millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Well, there's no particular reason for it, but it happens that the location for this week's episode is very, very close as the crow flies, and the crow does like to fly to the place where we recorded last week's. But the atmosphere couldn't be more different, and nor could the stories. We're in the east end of London once again, but rather than being at the water's edge, we're in the heart of Whitechapel, asking Monty Python style, what have women ever done for London? It's Friday the 9th of May 2014. I'm N. Quentin Wolfe. This is Londonist Out Loud. Hey baby, let me take you down to a place of strange sights and sound. You ain't never seen the light before. Just a stone throw from your front door. I'm standing outside Osmani School on Valence Road, which is a little bit north of Whitechapel Tube. There are sunflowers here in Mural, and standing before me with a flower of her own, Rachel Kolsky. I do mean that literally. You've, uh, you carry a furry flower around with you. Yes, indeed I do. I carry a velour fluffy flower around with me, and um, my current flower is bright red, and she has a little butterfly on her head as well, with, with sort of little antennae that flicker in the wind. So that's me. There is method in your madness, isn't there? You carry the flower around for a particular reason. Oh, yes, indeed. Um, I'm a, a London Blue Badge tour guide, and I hold my flower aloft and my rallying cry is follow the flower and uh, my groups will follow me wherever I am in London well that's the idea uh, the idea anyway it is going to be that sort of a show uh, you <laughs> may remember that we had a wonderful tour with Rachel uh, a couple of we just realized it's a couple of years ago of the Jewish East End and we've got a tour of a different flavor today now why are we outside Osmani school so um the reason I asked uh, to meet here on uh, Valence Road is that although I've been walking around you know, the East End for a long, long time, for many, many years, and people often think about the history and the changing demographics of the area, it's not just the demographics that change, the art changes, the buildings change. And every so often something just takes my imagination and I love it. And what I've got here in Valence Road is one of my favourite, favourite murals. It's on the Osmani School, which for people who remember when this area was the Jewish East End, they remember it as the Robert Montefiore school which can be a bit confusing for people and they say but Rachel 
wasn't this wasn't this the Robert Montefiore school? And I explain, yes, names do change. But the mural is absolutely delightful. It starts at one end with a tiny little sunflower seed just loitering all by itself. And then when you look at it uh, along the mural, it's got a tiny little sheet. And then it has two leaves. And then the sun, it has... sunbeams are pouring down upon it. Yes, there's sunbeams pouring down and the two leaves turn into four leaves. And then we go past the gates of the school and then we see a little sunflower bud bursting forth with more blue sky and sunbeams and then the sunflower grows and grows and at the end you've just got a fully formed sunflower and it's all done with mosaic and mirrors and on a sunny day it's just absolutely adorable and that's why I like it just for no other reason that I think it's adorable. It's very clever actually that mirror effect a certain proportion of the mosaic tiles are mirrors as you say and so it gives the effect rather of them being this horrid solid wall there it gives you the impression that you can maybe see through it or maybe there's a little bit more air and space. It is it, it just works it's a, and uh, along along the um, the fence the next lot of fence of the school they've actually got lots of lovely sort of um, silvery metally animals like an elephant and a snake and an ostrich. So, um, you know, just everybody, when you're walking around London, keep your eyes peeled. You never know what you're going to see. Well, as established, I don't know what I'm going to see uh, today. So what's on the uh, agenda? Have we got a sort of a plan of action? Yes, our plan of action is to bring to life a couple of my wonderful women of Whitechapel. And the reason I brought you to Valence Road in, in Whitechapel is because not so long ago, the Women's Library moved to um, the East End on Castle Street, to the old baths, the old, the old baths. And the Women's Library began to programme a most wonderful group of uh, series of walking tours. I say wonderful, I mean, I, I led them all, but you know what I mean. And we basically began in the East End and thinking about women who came to the East End and made a difference and then we also started to think about the lives of the ordinary women when I said the ordinary I mean the ones the unnamed ones the ones that toiled during the day well, now the distinction it sounds like you're making is the people who came and the people who were already here absolutely absolutely so the first to that and, and then we, we branched out to the rest of London obviously there's women's history everywhere in London um, I should say that the Women's Library uh, recently uh, relocated from the East End to the LSE the London School of Economics just in case some of the uh, the listeners think, hang on a minute, I don't remember seeing that when I was last in, um, in the East End. So the first uh, time we really started to think about women in Whitechapel was when WWW was actually still quite a new phrase and uh, we worked on this idea of WWW, What Women Want, which was the first exhibition, and Wonderful Women of Whitechapel. And uh, so I started to walk the, uh, around the area and think about women, in this instance, who made a difference to the area. And yes, there is a big distinction. In, you know, when you think of philanthropists who go to an area, say, like the East End of London, they typically came from outside, not um, exclusively, and I'm going to mention one wonderful lady who was born and bred here in this area. But typically they came from middle-class, upper-middle-class, aristocratic backgrounds for obvious reasons. You know, they had money and they had the time. And one should also bear in mind, I always say this for the chaps who might be listening, there were lots of gentlemen who came to the area as well who left their own legacy. So, you know, uh, William Booth and the Salvation Army, Dr Bernardos and Bernardos. But in this instance, it's, it's women uh, that we're going to concentrate on. And uh, when you come to this area of Whitechapel, when you walk around today, it's mostly housing, um, increased traffic. But if we, if we look, if we stop and look, we are going to find some lovely uh, stories about 
about some of my favourite women. So do you want, should we go to our first stop? Well, absolutely, yes. And uh, we're heading, I think, south down Valance Road here. I just wanted to go a little bit further back than the WWW era as well. And just thinking, when I think about the associations of women and Whitechapel, unfortunately, the stories that come to mind most readily are perhaps the 1888 stories of the women who were butchered by... Jack the Ripper, and of course the, the Match Girls struck. That's right, that's right. Yes, um, you know, that, one of those is a good story, I think, always to tell about women, and one of those is a, is a negative story. I have to say, when one thinks about the Whitechapel murders of 1888, I have a totally different take on it, and when I do my, my tour relating to those murders, I call it suffering to salvation, and my walk is very much geared to the women... Uh, why women turned to prostitution, what actually were the attitudes at that day towards pros- prostitution. They're not exactly as you might always always think. And then the um, organisations and help that came to this area to try and move women away uh, from prostitution. So I do, I do tackle it, but I do it in a, in, a slight, in a slightly different way. And the Match Girls strike, well, bless them, they crop up lots and lots of times. And indeed, um, we're sort of... In Whitechapel, in Valence Road, we're sort of between uh, sort of the, the key areas, I suppose you could say, for the Match Girls strike. It, the Bryant and May Match Factory was over in Bow, not so far away from here, between, I suppose, between where we're standing and the Olympic Park. Well, actually, the Match Factory actually overlooks the Olympic Park, although, of course, that isn't the factory that they worked in. That was a... That, no, that's right, that's, that's a 1910 it's construction. A, yes, it's a, it's a newer factory, but, oh, you know, never let, never let some facts get in the way of a good story. <laughs> that, that's, that's what I say. But one of the other things um, I always think about when you come to this area is we always think about the people, and quite rightly so. It was a very... The East End in the late 19th century was a very densely populated area people were working incredibly hard there wasn't health and safety that we have today um, some women in particular were the mothers the, the wives and the bread the breadwinners you know it was a hard, it was a hard life you know oh, can we can we hear a little bit about that because mm. that seems an overlooked idea yeah because again it links back often to health and safety or the lack of work in most cases was quite dangerous you know and a lot of men either died at work or they um, were maimed beyond being able to work. And so who was going to, before Social Security, there was only the poor law or charity. And so the women often had to be the breadwinner for the family um, as well. You know, it was a really, it was a really, really tough life. But, and, and they had lots and lots of children. It wasn't this, uh, I don't know what the average is now, whether it's 1.9 or 2.4 or whatever. But the point is, that, you know, they were on average having six or eight, eight children. So their lives were very, very hard. And a lot of early bereavement as well. A lot of early bereavement. And of course the children went out um, to work early. You know, when one thinks about youth clubs in this area, and a lot of youth clubs were started by, you know, wonderful women and wonderful men who came to the area to, to establish them I always try to remind people that you know for the youth clubs a lot of these young people had done a day's work if you were 14, 15 you'd been out to work before you went to your youth club in the evening you hadn't just had a, a, a day at school you know having, having a few lessons so I think life was, was much harder in many many ways but I know, I know everybody often says you know, people look back with you know what's it uh, pink Pink, rose-tinted spectacles. Rose-tinted spectacles, yeah. that, that's right. But I think we should remember. And on this day when everybody's um, talking about smog, is everybody talking about smog at the moment and, and, and haze in London, we still have it pretty lucky because, you know, there was pollution everywhere. You know, there was the breweries, there were the factories, they were all 
shunting out nasty smells and emissions. Mm. You, you know. A lot of horses on the street doing what the horses do. That's right. And what better lead could I have asked for to my next, my first and next woman? That was just absolutely lovely. Thank you. Because some people came to this area to help the people of the area. But one lady in particular, when she came to the East End, she... This is the, beginning of the 20th century she saw that there was a lot of issues with the animals as well that the animals couldn't be well looked after the animals weren't well fed veterinary fees as they are today were very expensive and if you didn't have a lot of money what were you going to do so she came to this area exactly where we are in Whitechapel and decided to shift her her work and initiatives from people to animals and she saw that you know before the days of vans and cars if you had goods and you needed to take them to market to sell you know, you needed your horse or your donkey or whatever to be fit. And uh, she raised money. She'd, uh, before she got married, she'd, she'd work. She was a working lady, but like so many women, stopped work when, you got ma- when she got married. She raised some money. And we're standing on the corner of Balance Road and Loma Street. And there was a pub here called The Grasshopper. And uh, she rented, I think it was a disused pub, but she rented the basement. She raised money to um, rent the basement. And in November 1917, she put up a banner and it said something like, bring your animals here, do not let them suffer, all animals treated, all treatment free. And uh, if you had an animal that needed some veterinary care, the money should raise pages for the vets to give that care. And that was the beginning here in Whitechapel of what we know today as the PDSA, the People's Dispensary for Sick Animals. And it was very, very successful. And uh, they weren't here actually in Ballots Road for very, very long. They moved down to um, Harford Street and Commercial Road, you know, a little bit still in the East End, but a little bit further south. And then in the 60s, I believe, they moved up to uh, Peterborough, the headquarters of the PDSA but if you travel around London or anywhere around the country you will still see you know PDSA people still donate money there's a, an association associated with it like called Pet Aid and it still does today exactly what it did back in 1917 it's um, curative it's not preventative so the money that goes to the PDSA is to help cure people's pets um, illnesses and and conditions obviously and it's still provided free obviously if you want to give some money then that's obviously a donation will always be um, very much appreciated by the PDSA Um, but I thought I thought that was quite interesting how somebody came and saw that you know the animals because that's inherent to people being able to be successful in their business and um, in the 1930s she set up a club called the Busy Bees and uh, the Busy Bees was to encourage children to be aware of um, animals and pets and how to look after them. And it reminded me when I read of this, when I was a child, there was um, a Christmas series of adverts called A Pet Is Not Just For Christmas. The idea to encourage children to think it's not just a present for Christmas Day and Boxing Day. Uh, you know, your pet must be, look, be looked after. And then in the Second World War, she, uh, this, this lady, Maria Dickin, she instigated something called the Dickin Medal, named after her. And um, between about 1943 and 1949, uh, over 50 medals were given to animals for bravery because she said that animals are also doing brave, brave work. And I, I really love the, the ribbon. The ribbon is blue, brown and green, which represents the three key forces, you know, the Navy, the Army and the, um, and the Air Force. You know, they mostly went to pigeons, by the way. Pigeons, dogs and a couple of horses and a cat. Um, and they're still given out today. And just like for humans, you know, you get medals for bravery in the face of the enemy and you have bravery in the civilian world, that those, the two levels of 
medals exist for um, animals as well. So if anybody has got a pet and they've done something incredibly brave, you know, like bark, do you know what I mean, to get somebody out of a house that's on fire or something, then don't forget to nominate that animal for a Dickin medal. For any cats listening, that really does not mean an extra mouse today. Uh, that's that's not included in the terms of this uh, <laughs> offer. I'm, I'm sure it's not going to work with a pigeon, though, is it? If you, uh, the whole point of a pigeon is it, that it stays aloft. And if you give a medal to a pigeon, you're going to weigh it down. I don't think she's thought this through at all. Oh, there's some, oh, there's some lovely archival footage I've seen of pigeons being given their medals. No, they, really, they wear the medals. Yes, uh, it goes over... Pretend you're a pigeon. I do and, that frequently, I do. Yeah, you're a bit tall for a pigeon and I, and I and you can't see me everybody but I'm quite short but I am putting over N's pigeon head um, the sort of the what do you call it the ribbon with the metal on it yeah, I'm I feel nice quite moved thank you <laughs> the gentleman walking past was wondering precisely what we're doing yes um, but I, I've distracted us with from actually what is uh, an immensely practical thing. The name of the uh, of, of Mrs. Dickin was it Marie Dickin? Did Maria, you say? Maria, Maria Dickin. Dickin. What an immensely practical step to take. Back in the day, of course, it wasn't uh, so much pets; it was much more working animals, absolutely. tools, essentially. Absol- absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. very good, very good. What's the next stop on our okay, tour? We're just going to walk a little bit north up Balance Road now. Okay, we're going back past the Sunflowers by the looks. Yeah. Of it. We've got a bit of a breezy day here, and we've got a lot of traffic, and there's little we can do about either. My apologies if it's been uh, grating in the background there. I must say there's a, a lot of traffic going on in the background here. And the uh, Crossrail, of course, extension just around the corner here as I came up from Whitechapel is presumably going to increase footfall in the area. Who knows uh, what effect that's going to have in the longer term. That's right. I mean, uh, Crossrail is going to bring one and a half million extra people within 45 minutes of London. Is that... Hurrah, do we say hurrah? Well, well, uh, <laughs> uh, there have got to be uh, pluses and minuses there, let's say that. Be- oh, hello. Now, uh, I'll let you in on a, the inside track of this job, listener, is that when I'm recording with pretty much anyone other than a tour guide, there's a reasonably devil-may-care approach to roads, and you can be interviewing and wandering across, oblivious to all vehicular danger. Uh, any tour guide that you're interviewing, you, you feel this iron grip on the, your arm as you're about <laughs> to step into the road. <laughs> I presume that you're used to shepherding people safely. Uh, in, indeed I am. Every tour begins with a little health and safety, little talk by me, yes, and we only ever cross when the electronic man is... Uh, blue. No, yellow. No, I'm, I'm not good at this. If you mix blue and yellow together, yeah, yeah, yeah. you get green. Green. Yay. <laughs> OK, so we're still on Valence Road. We're still on Valence Road. Two little signs. Um, you know, again, when one's in London, I always think, keep your ears and eyes open. Uh, there's usually a reason why anything is called what it is. Um, in this instance, we're next door to a big uh, block of flats called Treves House. That's named after Sir Frederick Treves, who was a, a surgeon linked to what's now the Royal London Hospital, often known as the Whitechapel Hospital. And he was the gentleman who discovered, I should say, uh, uh, John Merrick, who is also known as the Elephant Man. So that's why uh, the name Treves is often uh, sort of resonates with people. But for our purpose, because he's a man and we're on to women... I was going to say, he's one of the more unusual women of the year. Absolutely. Can you see a little sign saying Hughes Mansions just opposite? It's a tiny little uh, blue and white sign. Um, As we go down Balance Road, there's a much bigger sign saying Hughes Mansions. But this little sign, Hughes Mansions, is important for a couple of reasons. One, 
it's um, when you look at the block of flats, the block that the little sign is on, and the big sign for that matter, you can see from the yellow brick, it's a much older block. Although it's got infill at the top, uh, you can see the original brick at the bottom. And that, those buildings were built in the 1920s, late 1920s. And if you look over the courtyard, you'll see newer blocks of flats, and they were built in the 1950s. And um, the two stories linked to Hughes Mansions is one, the Lady Mary Hughes, after whom they're mentioned, and she lived not far from them, and I'll show you where she lived in a minute. But the other story I want to mention, it's a sad story, a very um, a tragic story from Second World War, but it's one of those stories that when you hear the name Hughes Mansions, uh, people, there's a sort of a, a recognition of, you know, ah, oh, yes, that kind of recognition. And what happened on the 27th of March... Uh, 1945, the last V2 rocket fell on central London. And the reason I say the timing is important because on the 27th of March 1945, that was the eve of the Jewish Passover. And the, the Passover is just about to come. So in the Jewish world at the moment, in Jewish families, everybody's busily uh, cooking, uh, no, we're, we're cleaning, 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 then thinking about shopping, 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 meals, 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 eating, eating, eating. And, um, and on the eve of the Passover, there's always a massive amount of activity. What's also very important to remember about the Passover is that it's the festival really in the Jewish world where families really try to come together. You know, um, you know our errant great uncle Eddie, you know, he, we never saw him from one year to the other but on, you know, the first night of Passover, he would appear almost from nowhere. You know, the family pull was so great. Isn't there a lovely Jewish word for somebody who only rocks up for meals? And <laughs> Oh, I know the word you're thinking of. It's not, it's not really like Great Uncle Eddie, who was sort of like the bat sheep of the family. You might be thinking of the word... Oh, it's not a very nice word. Are we allowed to say it? Well, are you thinking of the word schnorrer? Yes, I think it might. Yeah, be. so I think of the word schnorrer. Schnorrer is it's not, nobody wants to be a schnorrer. Trust me. Basically, you're sitting at a dinner table and the desserts come and the really posh chocolates come out and there's ten chocolates and ten people, but the schnorrer takes three. You know, uh-huh. and don't be, uh-huh. you'll say, "Don't be such a schnorrer." You know, you know that sort of thing. Or, but this, or, does, this does not yeah, apply to Uncle Eddie. Yeah, no, no, we loved Uncle Eddie. We loved Uncle Eddie. Um, but the point is, it was the eve of Passover, so the, the flat, this was a very Jewish area still in the 1940s, and it was 7 o'clock in the morning, so everybody was getting ready for work, getting ready for school, getting ready for the evening, etc., etc. And um, at 7 o'clock that morning, the V2 fell. Now, London in the Second World War had suffered from the V1s from 1944 onwards, which were nicknamed the buzz bombs and uh, the doodle bugs. They were the ones which were pilotless bombs where they, they just had um, fuel. And when the fuel ran out, the engine cut out, it went silent, mm. you had 20 seconds to get to safety. The V2s were slightly different. They were just rockets that were just fired over from northern Europe into uh, southeast um, England and into London. They were notoriously inaccurate, but a lot of them still hit, hit targets of some kind or another. And the, the difference between the V1s and the V2s is the V1s tended to fall and uh, um, affect a larger area, but with less devastation, whereas the V2 rockets would fall with greater velocity you never knew they if you heard them coming you were safe because they were faster than the speed of sound and they fell with greater velocity so where they fell there was more devastation so that morning over 130 people were killed and 120 of them were jewish so for the east end it was a terrible it was probably one of the worst civilian uh, tragedies uh, from a, a bomber rocket in the east end and for the jewish community it was particularly particularly hard and some people lost their lost their whole families. You know, because yes, these would have been gatherings of people. Yeah, you know. and one family I know of, they, the one of the girls was older. She'd got married, so she wasn't living here anymore, and she lost her mum, her dad, a sister, and two brothers. 
and one brother had changed his shift to be there for Erev Passover and another brother had come home specially for the Passover. So two of, two of those, those two brothers shouldn't have been there at all. And, of course, lots of families, sadly, have got similar stories. That doesn't make them any less... Um, less tragic. And when the king and queen, uh, George VI and Elizabeth, visited the East End in May of 1945, they came here uh, to Hughes to Hughes Mansions. So, um, so that's why you've got the two different two different style um, oh, housing. And is that is that why the uh, breast of the chimney is half one brick and half another? It, it could it could well be it could well be. There's been a lot of rebuilding and infilling and, and renovation in this area. Uh, totally. Now Mary Hughes, after whom these blocks of flats are mentioned. I'll point out there's a nice big plaque uh, saying they were built in 1928. She lived literally just um, 100 yards or so away. So let's go and see where she lived. We've crossed over the road. We're back on Valence Road. And because it's noisy here, we're just going to look up at the blue plaque and then we'll sneak around the corner. Uh, The plaque says, London County Council, Mary Hughes, 1860 to 1941. Friend of all in need. Lived and worked here from 26 to 41. Yes, it's, an, it's a real blue plaque, not a plaque that's blue that you often do see around London, London today. Uh, it was uh, put up by the London County Council. Blue plaques now, uh, they, 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 went, they then went under the jurisdiction of the Greater London Council, the GLC, and now it's English Heritage. That's why you'll often see a different name on the official blue plaques. And uh, Mary Hughes was a very special lady. And as we turn the corner, we're passing a building that if you'd never been here before you would probably say to yourself, didn't this used to be a... A shop. A pub. I was just going to say a pub. pub. Let let me take that again. Didn't this used to be a pub? It did indeed. And it's one of those lovely, typical sort of pub shapes where you've got like an entrance on the corner and then you've got windows on on two sides. Yes, of course you have. And we're on on Buxton Street if you want to check it out. Absolutely. And we'll just cross the road so we get a nice side. So now she's, she stopped working here in uh, 41 and she lived until 41 being, 41 being in the middle of the war. Did, did something awful happen? Uh, no. Um, Mary Hughes, she, she died really of, I suppose, say, natural causes or illness, right. you know, something like that. It wasn't, it wasn't a bomb. But her lifestyle had, uh, I suppose you could say, probably over the years, seriously affected her health. Uh, Mary Hughes was just one of these women who you just really wish you could have met. Um, she was one of these women that was full of energy full of vitality just wanted to get things get things done she was also what i considered to be perhaps one of the original bag ladies and i don't mean that in a horrible way um she was born into quite comfortable a uh, situation her father was thomas hughes who wrote tom tom brown's school day she was brought up for a time in mayfair in central london so they had money they, uh, but even as a young girl, she was one of these young girls who always wanted to make her doll better. You know, that sort of thing. Always thinking of, of, of others, even if it should be one of, one of her toys. And um, one of her early roles was she went to live in a village outside Reading with her uncle. Sort of acting as almost as a housekeeper. And when she went to Reading, she saw in that area that... You know, the workhouse, the workhouses, you know, uh, the workhouse could be run slightly differently. Maybe more things could be given to the to the residents. But they were called inmates in those days. But I don't like that word. I could say residents. Um, you know, could they have two cups of coffee a day and tea a day rather than one? I mean, something more like that. She recognised that there weren't many places where women could go by themselves to have a natter. You know, the pubs were out of ba- pubs were out of bounds unless you were sort of um, Salvation Army or a lady of the night. You know, women didn't go didn't go to pubs. So even as a young girl, she started to work within society she her her uncle died she came to london and when she came to london 
she went to live with her sister and brother-in-law. Uh, he was a curate of the parish of St Jude's, not far from here, at, at Whitechapel, uh, but nearer, nearer Allgate, east. And um, she continued her good work. Unfortunately, her sister and brother-in-law went on a cruise and they sadly died it was the Titanic and it's said that her sister was one of the ladies who gave up her place on a, on a lifeboat so they, they came from that kind of family and Mary then stayed in the east end of London and went to live and work with a couple of amazing other wonderful women called um, Doris and Muriel Lester who um, established a settlement and social centre called Kingsley Hall after their brother who died if anybody knows Bromley by Bow which is sort of where you hear on the traffic news every morning, boat flyover, if you just take a little bit of time to walk around the little area not of the flyover, you, you'll be well rewarded. It's a fascinating area, and there Kingsley Hall still exists. And I suppose for a lot of people it's claimed to famous that when Gandhi came to England in 1931, that's where he stayed, and you can actually go and visit the room where Gandhi stayed, and it's really quite, quite, quite spiritually uplifting in, in many ways. So she worked there for a time and uh, the Lesters just thought she was amazing. And then she came to this area where we're standing in Fulburn uh, Street, not far from where uh, we met. And um, she had like an open house syndrome, the, the rooms she rented. It was like an open door policy, you know, knock, come in. If I'm not here, make yourself a cup of tea, that sort of thing. But she wanted something a little bit more permanent. Um, so again, she had what we'd call today an address book, uh, raised money and took on the lease of this pub which was called the old earl gray she was vehemently anti lots of things actually anti-drink um anti-vivisection she was anti-eating meat she was a vegetarian she had her diet it was basically like bread and margarine hot chocolate without milk and um cabbage something like that probably wasn't the most pleasant of ladies to sit next to and she wasn't into washing either she was just always you know like life's too short with all this bathing and, and things like that despite and she used to walk around with bags of leaflets you know about everything that she agreed with and disagreed with and whatever and hand them out to you she never bothered with new clothes I mean she'd, she'd give her gloves away she just it was like a poverty what we call um, she became a shabby woman you know that, that phrase a shabby woman voluntary poverty and in the um, Earl, Earl Grey she, didn't, she wanted to eradicate the idea of it had been a pub so she renamed it the Dew Drop Inn and if you say that quickly, you'll get the idea of Dewdrop-In. And everybody that went there were known as the Dewdrop-Indians. And um, there was a, a prayer room. There was a place for people to live if they were coming through social work. Uh, she lived here. Um, refused to have heating in her room. Uh, she, she didn't have heating in her, what they were known as cells at Kingsley Hall. Um, so the, the builders who were doing sort of bits and bobs made the hot water pipes go down a wall in her bedroom because she didn't want a heater per se they felt that if the hot water pipes in her room she's going to get some heat whether she likes it or not that sort of thing and it was a place for the women of the area often just to get a bit of R&R rest and recreation you, you manage to eke an hour away from your, your husband the kids the this the that you can then just 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 spend some time time there so that's really what it was a, a social centre but also a prayer centre and a social social work centre um, in, in a way I mean I often think that that's really the purpose that pubs uh, certainly used to serve uh, in the whether consciously or not there was the opportunity for the, the fella to get away from his family and uh, <laughs> yeah. you know, hang out with like minds it's actually interesting you say that because there was some research done into pubs in the late 19th early 20th century by people who came over to England I, I don't think it was a British person I can't remember his name um, and he was quite fascinated by this, the number of um, 
things that we do in a pub that we take for granted, uh, what do you call it? etiquette, pub etiquette, like this notion of standing your round, you know, off, you know, and one for yourself and all this kind of stuff. But the one of the key things is what? Why did people go to pubs in such big numbers? Because their houses typically were cramped and overcrowded and noisy. And you went to the pub; it was light, it was warm, at no cost to yourself, and it was congenial. And that is actually why pubs and you know and indeed the pubs that remain today I think that's now really what, what people like it's it's um it's warm friendly and of course you get food as well you know, more than more than a more than a, a pickled onion have you been conscious of the, coming back to women have you been conscious of the the moment if there was such a thing when women started to go into pubs was that in uh, in, in our lifetimes or was was that before it's an interesting question if you if you look at film and pictures of pubs from decades and decades and decades ago, I'm talking about the 20th century, there were always lots of women in, in the pubs. You know, the, the knees up, you know, the, the family the family things. I mean, there were two, always two bars, weren't there? There was the saloon and the pub. Sort of family bar. Yeah, and the family bar and the more sort of man, manly bar. Um, I, so I think it always was a bit like that. But those were the local... Um, community pubs that I think for, for for men and women. I think in the central London, it's it's relatively relatively recently. I, I I think the big shift, I think the big shift has been from I would say the early 80s, which to me seems like yesterday, but actually is like nearly 35 years ago. You know, isn't it? It's a bit scary, isn't it? Mm. It scares me. I can tell you. Um, but yeah, that for me, that's when I would I would I would date it. But uh, there might be some people that have done some. Uh, bigger, bigger recession, and certainly the the change of um, law about smoking has made has made a big difference. And also, I mean, the fact that women, you know, since you know, women are working. You know, when I first started working in the city, women, women were not. We had rules about what we could wear and what we could not wear. You know, we could not wear trousers to work in the city. You were not allowed to as a woman. So, if you think that in the eighties those rules were still around, you can imagine. The other kind of things that were still percolating around around society. I'm dying to ask, what, what did you do in the city? Oh, what did I do in the city? Oh, I'm a librarian by profession, so I've always been. I was in business information for about 25 years. So yeah, researcher. Yeah. Ah, okay. <laughs> a new angle on Madame Kolsky. Um, <laughs> let's carry on with our tour of this part of town. And where is our next destination? Well. We're walking down Buxton Street, and what we're going to do is there's lots of um, new housing over to our right-hand side, uh, left-hand side, and over to our right-hand side is um, a, a school. But what we're going to do, we're going to deviate a little bit to our left, and I'm going to show you a building site. And oh, lovely. Lovely, absolutely. But it's a building site with a very, very special history. Now, there's building aplenty going on. I think you'll be able to hear in the background, listener the usual uh, hammering and I can see to our right there's a big construction going on as well over the top of uh, a little school there there's the gherkin peeking between the buildings to our left the walkie-talkie and the, walkie-talkie and the shard so it's oh, not, wow, that's quite a line it's up. not that hazy is it today we can see all of those we've also got an interesting line through there haven't we to be able to see all of those yeah together I have to say, one of the upsides of the tall buildings in, in London is that nowadays when people ask you like in which direction is something like Elephant and Castle, you can actually now tell them, you know, where and sorry, where's you know, where's London Bridge? You can actually now show them. And um, so it's they're useful as uh, compass points if if nothing else. Yeah, very good idea. <laughs> 
Uh, well, as you can hear in the background, we've got the building site here behind us as Rachel prepares herself for the next uh, bit of information to come forth. An opportune moment, I think, to hear from our sponsor, Audible. And I, w- I would just say, by the way, you're fantastic. You're signing up in droves for Audible. Uh, and this is really important to us. You know, this is the lifeblood of the show. Uh, having people sign up to our, our sponsors means that we get to stay on air. So... Thank you. And keep going. If you haven't already signed up for Audible, it's a great service. I use it myself, and uh, it's, a, it's a case of listening to stories. What could be better than that? Great if you're in the car. Great if you're on the tube. Great if you're going to sleep. Give it a listen. There's a free trial there, and you get a free audiobook. But uh, don't take it from me. Take it from our American voiceover. Londonist Out Loud is sponsored by Audible. To claim your free audiobook from a range of 60,000 titles, try the Audible service on 30-day free trial. Audiobooks can be saved as MP3s and played on your compatible phone, tablet, or desktop, or burned to CD, and they're yours to keep. For your free audiobook, go to www.audible.co.uk slash Londonist and click through. You're listening to Londonist Out Loud. I'm with Rachel Kolsky, and we're in the back streets of Whitechapel and in Buxton Street at the moment, specifically. And Rachel is a Blue Badge tour guide. Go London Tours is the name of the business. Go and have a look at them, the, the website being www.golondontours.com And if you've been listening to the I don't know how you would have got here if you haven't been listening to the first half of the show, you'll know that Rachel is a mine of information and the tours get snapped up really quickly you'll often find that they'll be put up there and sold out almost immediately, she's very popular so do get on there and if you're of a mind to try one of them out then be quick about it We're standing outside a construction site which is always good for audio and why are we here? Well, we're on Buxton Street looking through to Underwood Underwood Road, sometimes known as Underwood Street, depending on what map you look at. And the building site that you see is coming along apace, I think is the phrase. If you'd come here a few months ago, they were just sort of like doing the foundations. And now every time I come here, like another layer seems to have been put on. What you've got to try and imagine, it's going to be new housing. Uh, there's a desperate need for housing here in the London Borough of Tower Hamlets. But what you've got to try and imagine is that... Just over two years ago, if you'd come to this site, you would have seen one building, which was like, they called them the cottages, but basically they were two, two um, house, house-looking buildings with lovely sort of tall gabled um, roofs. And then alongside it, they dated from 1912, then alongside it was a much longer brick building that dated from the 1920s. And uh, when I first started walking around this area, there was um, a big sign over one of the doors saying the Mary Hughes Family Centre so linking again to the Mary Hughes that we just heard about around the corner um, that sign sort of disappeared and then I saw like you know to let signs I thought oh what's going to happen and um Ultimately, just as I said, just over a couple of years ago, the, the buildings were demolished. There was a big fight, actually, to try and save the buildings, to try and get them listed, uh, but English Heritage um, turned the application down. And the, the reason it was so important for the buildings to be retained uh, for, for sort of London's and women's collective history is that those buildings were the Jewish maternity hospital. And, you know, the reason they were so important to, to keep, sadly... It's, it can't, can't happen now, is that it was a, a sort of a start-up. It was something that happened by a community for a community and it was also linked very much to a women and women's history, obviously, which is um, fascinating. It's getting much more press today than it ever did, ever did before. And my wonderful woman, who was very much involved with the Jewish Maternity Hospital, with all her supporters, obviously, and funders and other philanthropists, was a lady called Alice Modell. And Alice Modell, she was born Alice Sichel. She came from a Jewish family in northwest London, West Hampstead way, and was one of those Jewish families that was 
quite assimilated. Their, their Judaism really wasn't you know, ne- necessarily a great part of their life. Um, they never denied their Judaism, but that, they weren't orthodox. And um, when she got married, she did what a lot of other, as I've said before, uh, married women did. What can I do? And she came over to the East End of London, and um, this was in the late 19th century. And um, good old Alice wasn't behind one, not two, but three lovely initiatives. I'll, I'll try and be brief, because I think they're all quite important in their own way. The first initiative... Well, don't, don't be brief. I mean, this is what we're, <laughs> this is what we're, here, we're here for. <laughs> um, the first initiative that she set up was um, something called the Sick Rooms Help Society. This is something she'd heard of that happened in Germany. It was a brilliant idea. And basically it goes back to what I was saying before about women and their responsibilities. Women had the responsibility of being the mum, the, um, the homemaker, uh, the wife... Um, the cook, the cleaner, the shopper, the ironer, whatever. And if the woman of the household should become ill, um, she didn't lose any of those responsibilities. The husband still needed to have his packed lunch made, the kids needed to be washed and dressed and packed off to school. If she was working, she had to work, you know, that sort of thing. And it meant that her recovery was impeded because she had all her other responsibilities. The Sick Room Help Society basically was an um, initiative where people could uh, donate money, donate a fund, and if a woman of a household should be ill, that money would fund somebody to come in to do the, the tasks, and then the lady of the household could get, get well quicker. That, that was the idea. And it worked exceptionally well, and uh, so much so that a couple of years later, this is in um, 1895, she made it into like um, a provident society. She encouraged, however poor the women were in the area, she encouraged them just to give a penny or a halfpenny, sixpence, whatever they could, um, in, into the pot. I suppose you'd call it like a a friendly society or an insurance, that, that sort of thing. And often, like, um, years ago, when women had the babies, they would go to hospital for weeks, you know, none of this in and out in a day. And um, uh, sometimes uh, the society would pay then for a woman to come in and look after the household while the mother was away. And you meet, I've met people, they're, they're quite senior now, but I remember one of them saying to me, oh, yes, I remember, you know, mummy went away, came back with little baby sister, and a lady came to stay with us. And it, was, it, it sort of made it real, you know. Um, people don't tend to think about it as a rule, day to day, but when they hear about it, the, the idea comes back. So that was the Sick Rooms Help Society. Really, really good. Another initiative that Alice Modell set up a few years later, in 1897, was um, the Jewish Day Nursery. Again, for kids who were preschool, or maybe for a few kids if they, um, they needed some time between their mum and dad going off to work and them going to school. And she started that day nursery in Spitalfields, became really, really successful, and they moved to um, a street called New Road, which is a road that links um, Whitechapel Road and Commercial Road, so still in the East End. And um, state of the art, she uh, made sure there was a doctor on duty every day to examine the children, so they prevented communicable diseases getting into her nursery, uh, raised money to enhance the building, um, you know, adding on areas at the top where the kids could go out to sunbathe. In those days, sun was good, you you know, um, and that sort of thing. Um, The nursery itself was considered so state-of-the-art that girls from schools in in the area and colleges would come to the nursery to see how children can be looked after in a nursery as a precursor maybe for them going into service themselves or indeed becoming young mothers themselves. It, it had that amazing reputation. And uh, come the 1930s, as the Jewish population was moving away from this area and also they wanted somewhere a little bit more purpose-built, they started plans to raise money for a purpose-built, a new purpose-built nursery. But the Second World War intervened. This is a 
a refrain you'll hear a lot about things that were going to happen in the 1930s, any, anywhere for that matter. And during the war, in 1943, Alice Modell died. Um, but after the war, a new nursery was built and they named it after her, the Alice Modell Nursery. And if you go to Stepney Green Station, Tube Station... Just cross, up the road from us. Yeah, cross the road and you go down a little road called Beaumont Grove on the way to Stepney Green Gardens itself, you will see the um, Alice Modell Nursery. And when people see it, uh, you know, lots of people never give any... You know, thought to the name, but now everybody will know. Well, anybody that's listening to you uh, will will know why why it's called the Alice Modell Nursery. It's been there since the fifties, and then not content with her sick rooms help society that's and not, the nursery no, as, as if not content with essentially setting up a, a prototype NHS yes yes <laughs> she also realised that there was um, a, um, a severe lack of maternity care provision in London. This is not a Jewish thing. That was just the way it was in the early twentieth century, and also. Down the road, we've got the London Hospital, now the Royal London. They had a lot of uh, facilities for the Jewish community, uh, Jewish wards, kosher food, special visiting rights. You know, Jewish community's needs were well looked after. But a lot of women, when they were coming to have their children, they, they, maybe they wanted to be with Jewish doctors, Jewish natives, Yiddish-speaking, whatever. And so money was raised uh, by Alice Modell with other uh, philanthropists, um, the Anglo-Jewish elite of the day. Sometimes people gave money, sometimes they gave in kind. Like, for instance, um, uh, Harris Liebus, which was a big Jewish furniture company, gave a lot of furniture, you know what I mean, rather than, say, just donate money. And uh, in 1912, uh, those little gabled cottages that I mentioned opened up as the Jewish Maternity Hospital. And again, very, very popular, in great demand. So it was extended in the 1920s. And there were, like, operating theatres, accommodation for the midwives, you know, all all that kind of thing. And by the 30s, 1930s, probably around 800 babies were being born a year there. But again, uh, just... You know, like so many other things, they were thinking maybe we should move from the East End. Let's move somewhere leafier. The Second World War got in the way. During the war, the maternity hospital was um, evacuated to Hampton Court. So you will find some Jewish people are out live today. Uh, they're going to be what in their seventies, I suppose, maybe, who who proudly have Hampton Court on their on their um, on their birth certificate which does look rather grand it wasn't actually in the palace but it was in the area and then after the war in the late 1940s the Jewish Maternity Hospital reopened as the Bearsted Memorial Hospital in uh, Lordship, um, Lordship Road in Stoke Newington that's since been demolished as well but that's an- another story named after uh, the second Viscount Bearsted who, who donated so much money t- uh, towards it and um, the funny thing is you know, there's nothing about Alice Modell listed in the name, you know, Jewish Maternity Hospital. And in fact, you won't even hear people say they got, uh, they were born in the Jewish Maternity Hospital. They, were, they always say they were born at Mother Levy's because Mother Levy was one of these long-standing superintendents at the hospital. So it was nicknamed Mother Levy's. So whenever you hear somebody say they were born at Mother Levy's or their mother or their parent or grandparent, uh, where you see this new housing, that's where... That's where they were born. My mum was born, actually, at, um, at Mother Levy's. Uh, we, we only re- relatively recently found out, actually. So, um, that must have been really exciting, presumably after you've been talking about this place for well, a little while, yes. to, to find that out. What actually happened was, Mummy used to tell my sister and I that she was a Cockney and everything. And we said to Mummy, no, you can't be a Cockney, because she was born, born and brought up in Islington. So we thought, and we said, Mum, but, you know, a mum's a mum. You know, and if a mum says, that's what I say, you know, you go, OK, even if you didn't quite believe it. And it was only 
and, and then you know it's not something you think about every single day and it was only actually when we were going through some papers after we died um, we found a birth certificate and uh, and there it was Jewish Maternity Hospital and we realised she was right all the time oh but we couldn't tell her we couldn't say sorry so a re- I would say retrope- a retrospective sorry you know up above but yeah yeah it was exciting that's an amazing story. I hate, I hate lazy gender stereotyping, and I hate the idea that uh, men can't be uh, caring and nurturing, and I hate the idea that women can't be practical. If you've ever entertained the idea that women can't be practical, listen to what you've just heard. <laughs> These institutions intervening on a social level exactly where they're needed, preempting antenatal care and uh, and, and uh, teaching and, and things like that. Absolutely fantastic. Yeah, they are. They really, to me, they really are wonderful women, and we've only we've only walked. A- a few hundred yards and for me the stories are really very special and you know these are these women who came from outside the area each one of them came from outside the area and they've they've left a legacy of some of some kind and uh, you know i think they should be applauded and cheered and that's why i think they're wonderful well, me too. And we're coming to the top of the hour, and that means we've only got a short amount of time to squeeze in one more item, and I really want to do that. We're heading over to Hanbury Street now. The northern end of Hanbury Street, because it's a long road. Some of you who go to Spitalfields regularly will always hit Hanbury Street because it hits Brick Lane, but we're going to the northern end near Whitechapel. OK, and you know how, uh, how to travel quickly when you're doing a podcast, is you put a little advert on. So we'll be there in about 25 seconds. Yes. Londonist Out Loud is available free as a stream at Londonist.com or a weekly download via iTunes. Hit us up on Facebook at Londonist Out Loud, tweet at Londonist Sound, and check out images of our guests via the Londonist Out Loud stream on Instagram. Well, listener, I thought that was going to speed things up, but to be honest, Rachel does walk awfully fast, and I think we might have made it in less than 25 seconds anyway. <laughs> <laughs> We're just around the corner in Hanbury Street opposite the Brady Arts and Community Centre. Why are we here? Well, we're here because uh, the ladies that I've mentioned so far are ladies who didn't, who were not born and brought up in the East End, but have left their legacy and mark in one way or another. But the Brady Centre is linked to a lady who was born and brought up in the East End, and uh, really never, never deserted her patch. Although for a time she didn't live in the East End, but came back during the Second World War. And her name is Miriam Moses. Uh, if you go down to Princelet Street again, some of you, if you explore Spitalfields, you'll know the street, Princelet Street. And uh, there's a plaque that's blue, not a blue plaque, um, on number seven. Princelet Street that says this is where Miriam Moses, um, first female mayor of Stepney and social reformer, uh, was, was born. I think it was 18, 1886. She was one of 11 children. Her father died when she was 18 and uh, she was a teacher. And her father had been involved in both what I call the, the secular and the Jewish communities. So he fired on both cylinders. And Miriam uh, continued his work, again, both for the Jewish community and the non-Jewish community. Uh, so she became a member of the council, she became a justice of the peace, she became an alderman. Then in 1930-31, she was um, mayor uh, of Stepney, the first, as I've just said, female mayor of Stepney, the first Jewish female mayor of anywhere in the United Kingdom. Um, however, when you meet people from the East End, Jewish or not, really, when you say the name Miriam Moses, that isn't what they say. They don't say to you, oh yeah, wasn't that fantastic? She was the first female mayor of the London borough of Stepney, which was one of three boroughs that became what we know today as Tower Hamlets. No, people don't say that, although that's a great thing for her to have achieved. People say, oh, Miriam Moses. Oh, Miss Moses. Oh, Lady Bountiful. Oh, you know, I was one of her girls. Because in the 1920s, she set up something. You get different names, but basically the Stepney Jewish Girls Club. 
and uh, for, for girls. And as I mentioned before, these were for girls often who had done a day's work, you know, and then went to youth clubs in the evening. And the youth clubs typically in the East End of London, Jewish or non-Jewish, were very geared to getting the, the confidence of the young people up, you know, so uh, debating and drama, elocution, all these things were really important at these youth clubs because it enabled... Um, the young people to have more confidence to go out and ha- go for a job interview and, and go out into the into the working so into the working world. Um, plus, there'd be lots of other things to do as well, games, you know, and dances if you were lucky, that sort of thing. There was already a Stepney Jewish Boys Club in the area, uh, often known as the Brady Brady Club, and they uh, rented accommodation. Well, there were always huts and uh, vestry halls to rent, and the girls' club began in the same way. But the girls had Miriam Moses. And Miriam decided to raise money for a purpose-built social centre for her girls. And in 1935, the Duke and Duchess of York, later uh, George VI and Queen Elizabeth, came to Hanbury Street and opened the building that you see um, in front of you, if if you were standing here with us, uh, in the middle of the 1930s. And what's wonderful is that although... The club ultimately moved. It moved in the 1970s to the to the suburbs. The building still remains. We can't say that for all buildings, as I've just been saying. But it's also doing for the current demographic community of, of this area what the Brady Centre did all those years ago. Because can, I, can I just check that name though? Because if I've understood it correctly, it was the boys' thing that was called Brady yeah. and the girls' thing Moses. Why has this ended up being Brady? Oh, Brady Centre. Oh, yeah, it is, it is quite complicated. When you hear about the clubs, you often only hear uh, Stepney, Stepney Jewish Girls Club, Brady Club, etc., etc. And, of course, this isn't on Brady Street. It is very complicated because um, it's because the boys, they had centres on Brady Street, which isn't so far away, a little bit east of where, where we were. And that's, that's the name that stuck. That's the name oh, okay. that stuck. Yeah, because there was a centre on Brady, Brady Street, one of the temporary centres. The boys, by the way, their nose was put out of joint when the girls got this purpose-built centre in the 1930s. But after the war, the girls let the boys come and use this centre as well. And so it it was everything. So as well as it being the youth clubs in the 30s and and onwards, you also had um, facilities for women, pregnant women, and for nursing women. Then you had uh, facilities for seniors, you know, um, elderly people. And it was like a sort of a a cradle-to-grave social centre. I mean, literally thousands of people used it every 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 uh, week. Miriam Moses, um, by the time of the Second World War, was living in northwest London, but she came back. Uh, during the war, she stayed in this building, and it became a settlement, it became um, a shelter uh, for anybody that needed assistance, anybody that had been bobbed out. Miriam Moses, when well, you heard about Hughes Mansions, we're, we're not so far away, you know, it's a you know, hop, skip and a jump. Miriam Moses spent a lot of that day over at uh, Hughes Mansions doing what she could uh, for, the, for the bereaved and, and, the, and the survivors and they came back to her centre in the evening to do what she had to do for, for the Passover so she really got things done. She was also a chair of the, um, the shelter committee here in the East End or, or Stepney. Uh, it was well documented in the Second World War that the shelter provision in the East End which was bearing a, the brunt of the Blitz, uh, the shelter provision was far inferior to what was being provided in the West End which was which was being bombed but not to uh, such uh, a, a great uh, effect and uh, she was head of that shelter committee and she she got she got things done um, so she also you know I've met a lot of people that knew her and, and most people often remember her with great affection but there are some people who remember her as a, she was a bit of a dragon and um, she uh, also sat on the juvenile court at Toynbee Hall and I, I do believe that if you had 
you know, if you had been naughty and had committed a misdemeanor, you would get the um, appropriate uh, punishment from her. But I, I also think she she probably had one of those what I call little dragon jeans, you know, because to get things done on the way she did, firing on so many different cylinders. Um, you uh, you have to have you have to have a modicum of a dragon gene in in you, but m- mostly much much love lady. She was on This Is Your Life, and uh, she was given various other um, gongs as well. You know, like I think it was the OBE something something like that. I could listen all day. Something that's been striking me as you've been talking, and I'm afraid because uh, time's run away with us, I have to say this in conclusion, although whether it's much of a conclusion, I don't know. But I find it interesting, uh, we're talking to Clive Bettington about a woman who was responsible for getting sort of memorials and uh, remembrances arranged, and he described her affectionately as a battle axe. And it occurs to me that that these terms, dragon and battle axe, apply to it. There's something sort of negative in in a woman, but I don't think that's the the case at all. I think we need battle axes. And the, the phrase that's ringing in my ears is she got things done yes absolutely um, I love that phrase she got things done and, and I just think a dragon gene a bit of a dragon gene within us you know, you, you know there's nothing wrong in that at all I think we should I think you're quite right we should start thinking about that as a positive thing so thank you. And we've got, we've got to close off there, but let's uh, say in parting that you've got books on sale at the beautiful photographic exhibition going on at the moment over uh, Liverpool Street Way. I'm sure that's something that people can find out about yes, through your website as well. Yes, thank you. It's the uh, C.A. Matthew exhibition at um, 11 Spitalfields, which is a gallery at 11 Princelet Street. Beautiful photographs taken in and around the Spitalfields area back in April 1912. Well worth a look, absolutely worth a look. I'm sorry we don't have a a few more hours this time, but hopefully we shall meet again. Rachel Kolsky, thank you very much. No, thank you very much too. And that's all for this week. My thanks for this week to Rachel Kolsky. Thanks too to Mark Barr and Bernie Barclay. Theme and incidental music was by Songs from the Howling Sea. I'm Anne Quentin Wolfe. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 